Welcome to a new series of the Grimshaw podcast, Building the City, with your host, Tim Williams. Hi, I'm Tim Williams and I'm your host for the Grimshaw Cities podcast series. This is our third series. The last one was about culture and the city, and this is about building cities. Architects build cities, builders build cities, construction firms build cities, governments build cities, uh, economies build cities. So we're going to look at all this, but I thought we'd start in a slightly unusual place, which is a talking to a behind-the-scenes person who was in the room when major decisions were taken uh, in the building of London as a great global city in the last 20 years, and that's Richard Brown, uh, now an independent consultant, always a friend of mine, but previously senior uh, in London government as an advisor to mayors, to the Olympic delivery process, and subsequently um, as deputy head of the Centre for London. So who better than to talk about building London than Richard Brown? Richard Brown, now, uh, the series that we are uh, launching with you, the third series of the Grimshaw Cities podcast, is about building cities. And I thought it was an unusual place to start because normally when people think of building cities, they think of, uh, you know, architectural folk and engineering folk, and they think of, uh, you know, might even think of developers and bricklayers, but they don't necessarily know that there's uh, some people uh, who are um, behind the scenes, kind of, you know, maybe coming up with ideas, maybe pushing the system, maybe uh, linking people up, uh, maybe essentially being kind of civic entrepreneurs, which I think you have been in London for 20 years. So I, 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 I'm going to talk about you, and we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Because there, there are many ways of building a city, and there is a Richard Brown way, we, I think. So we're going to talk about that. Um, so I thought, Richard, unusually, we'd begin at the end. Uh, so I was going to, by which I mean, you, you actually wrote something recently, days ago, about the London census, which I thought I might mm. actually want to start with, because I want to, I want to, one thing to get across is, although neither of us, I think, are from London originally, you're, you, you've got a deep knowledge and love of London and you've worked on London for, oh, you know, 20, over 20 years, even though you then obviously decamped to Brighton. Uh, but essentially you've been mucking around with London for a, for a long while, but you still can't stop mucking around with it because you, you responded to what the London census told us, uh, the census told us about London. What did it tell us about London in this rather interesting moment? Well, um, thank you, Tim. And it was, it was an interesting time to do a census um, because it was uh, done in March 2021 when, um, uh, you know, the UK's lockdown rules were still in place, more or less. Um, it was starting to be relaxed, but a lot of people had clearly moved out of the city or been stuck in the city, so you didn't have the normal uh, mobility you'd expect. Um, so the census, I think we need to be a bit cautious about looking at the census, but what it showed was, I think, some positives that London's population has been relatively resilient. Um, so, some interesting things that London's middle-aged population has really grown very fast. I and mean, what we don't really know about is the 20 to 30 year old age group. Those are the age group where a lot of them appear to have been staying at home, I, I, by which I mean staying at their parents' homes outside London, um, or maybe not even coming to London in the first place to study or to find jobs. So I think there would look like being a loss of that generation, but I think that is probably already changing. And some of the payroll figures we've looked at, as in what age groups were paying tax in London, has already shown people coming back into the city. The other interesting thing was a, a big boom in, uh, I suppose, the baby boomer generation in London. Big growth in the population of people in their 50s and early 60s, um, particularly in some of the inner London areas, which previously might have been areas where you lived when you were young, and then you moved out to the suburbs, then you moved out maybe to a town outside um, London. So I think that's interesting. I think that's probably a, a lucky generation of whom we were both when we lived in London part, who bought property when it was quite cheap in the early 90s. Um, and, and have been able to carry on living in um, quite decent property in or near central London, um, while others have struggled to move in. It's not a bad thing in itself. Um, and Brighton, where I live now, has a very similar demographic profile. Um, it makes for quite nice neighbourhoods, good neighbourhood restaurants, nice local shops, um, well-looked-after streets. My concern is slightly whether it sort of squashes out some of that vitality of new people coming into the city um, that we all rely on. And when you see that Lambeth, Lewisham and Southwark, those are three inner South London boroughs, quite inner city in their characteristics, have been the places where 
uh, have seen the biggest growth in this age group. You do wonder, well, where are new arrivals in the city going to be able to land? Where are they going to get a foothold? But, um, you know, that's yet to be seen. But you know, there was worrying trends before COVID of, of cities solidifying and, you know, be, be, keeping people out because of the cost. And there had been a kind of feeling that there had been a very a rampant 30-year model of regrowing the cities. We forget. I mean, you, you were one of the people to tell us a while back. You know, London uh, reached its lowest point of population, I think, in the mid-90s, around seven and something million, and then had a 25-year romp to, what, nine Million. Nine million. Yeah. yeah, but the, but they were all, they were beginning to be signs years back of overheating of prices and all this kind of stuff. So the model was beginning to sort of fracture a bit before. But COVID has, has obviously radicalised certain things. I mean, one thing to give you an international context, the um, I was quite in, in GLL, JLL and people should look at this. JLL did some really interesting research recently showing the rental impact of these demographic trends and the, the way in which people began to shy away from the city centres, homeworking, hybrid working, not going on mass transit so much, that Sydney, despite the fact that it had a spectacular success in terms of actual COVID management, you know, in terms of the, the deaths, uh, had uh, amongst the highest reduction in rents in the world. And there are two possible reasons for that. Uh, one is uh, the earn the commute, the whole idea that the that there may be some difficult commutes into Sydney because it's a rather large city. So that keeps people at home a bit. But the other thing that's even more interesting is that we've got very large houses. We've got some of the largest houses in the world. And so people were, were able to set up their office in their, in, their, in their home in a place like Sydney. And that had a disproportionate effect on demand for office space in the CBD. So these are big forces going on. Mm. Like that. This is big shapes going on, big changes going on. I don't think we know exactly where they land. And, I, and I, I get a bit frustrated that people are sort of fatalistic saying, oh, CBD is dead, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's all finished, a new model. And I'm not sure, but I am sure that we need to get together and think about what we want uh, because we could end up with quite a lot of stranded assets in the middle of our of our great cities and uh, and and deep seated economic uh, and social problems that we're really not grappling with. But that's for the end of our conversation. Because I want to go back to your your journey, right? So you've told us a bit about London. Your previous gig before you are now an independent consultant, but you spent a long time helping to build and lead, helping to lead the Centre for London, right? You're a leading force in the Centre for London. What was the Centre for London? What is the Centre for London? Uh, yeah, it, it's still going strong. Um, the Centre for London was set up by um, Ben Rogers. Um, in around 2011. I think coming out of the great financial crisis, seeing that London was in a different situation from other parts of the UK and seeing the emergence, and it's always been a, 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 a um, thread in uh, UK discourse of a sort of stop talking about London, let's talk about the rest of the country. Um, a slight resistance to London as this all-powerful, quite centralised capital city. So feeling the reaction to that need to be a think tank that really thought about London specifically, London's future, London's particular challenges, and even then, uh, 11 years ago, you know, issues such as the affordability of the housing were already coming to the fore. Yeah. And so set up a small think tank to look at some of those housing issues, some of those issues of social equity, to look at London's particular economy, um, and particularly some of its sort of high-end business services, and really to act as a voice, uh, a source of research, and a place to think about you know, how the city developed its future. Alongside, obviously, we have in London, a mayoralty with uh, Greater London Authority, um, and we have business organisations like London First. But the idea was to be a more independent think tank that wasn't run by a politician and wasn't representing the interests of a particular sector. And it's, I think the appetite for it was very strong. Um, it's grown uh, when I left uh, last year, there were around 21, pe 21 people, growing from about four people wow. when I joined it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it puts out a programme of great research every year, um, big research reports, um, and runs events, including our annual flagship conference, which uh, the London Conference, see, I'm still referring to it, to it as our, their annual flagship conference, the London Conference, which um, Ben Rogers, the former director, used to describe as Davos for London. I'm not never sure that was quite the right tone, but not a place quite. where no. all of London's different sectors could get together and talk about, you know, this year I think the theme for that is who is London working for? And I think that's a really interesting question yeah. and comes back to some of the themes we've talked about. London has for some time been a success in general terms, been top of league tables in terms of as a world city. But, you know, who is that success for? Who's benefiting from that? And who is maybe getting bruised by the experience of being in this uh, big global melting pot? This is a very big story. The the Because I think there's a, there's a 
a yes and a no, you know, in, in all this, which is to say that, you know, I mean, I spent, just for people who don't know my own background, I spent from 98 to 2003 and then more or less in government doing the same sort of thing of promoting, yes, promoting East London was my first job in urban regeneration, but also then, you know, uh, trying to work out what the city stories were for all the cities, but but the interplay between London and the rest was a big, big theme, right? Always, so when I was working you know, from 2005 to, to 10 in government. And there was always an anywhere but London complaint, you know, kind of, but but at the end of the day, it was producing about 10 or more uh, percent of national, I think maybe a dozen percent, you'll tell me, of, G, of national GDP, obviously disproportionate. Now, the, the either or problem is something like this, which is a real issue, but it wasn't like London's fault, which is that the at the same time, we saw internationally that cities grew um, part because of the shift towards knowledge jobs uh, agglomerating in in these kind of clusters in in cities, so we saw this everywhere in the world of the knowledge job explosion into the former, you know, urban inner urban areas of all of all cities, and and that shift was was spatial as well as sectoral, but it wasn't like London caused it. You know, it was like London was the 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 expression of that shift, so which which disempowered over generations of Bradford or a, or a Manchester or whatever and empowered a London, but it wasn't like London did it. Uh, it was, and it wasn't even a conscious action of national policy. Uh, so, I, so I do think things, these things are, they tend to be framed as either or, but they, they have left us with a very imbalanced Britain is the problem, right? So, mm-hmm. so London, London gets it in the neck for the imbalance in Britain, I think. And, and there are all sorts of challenges there. I mean, look, Britain has a, particularly England, um, as part of Britain, I think there's some of the challenges in South Wales. It has a collection of medium-sized post-industrial cities, for ones the better, particularly the sort of central Yorkshire, um, Manchester, the Leeds belt, where you have a lot of medium-sized cities that were centres of heavy industry, centres of textiles in particular, and, you know, have the potential to form a great agglomerative city themselves, but it's never quite come together. It's never quite gelled. So, yeah, there's been a challenge there of, you know, just the distribution of different sizes of cities in London, I mean, in, in England. And you are seeing Manchester, Leeds, Birmingham now as three big sort of contender cities, both, you know, asserting themselves a little bit as centres for um, modern business services, modern financial services. But, you know, there's a huge legacy of catch-up to get, get through. So it's interesting. I, I'm I'm going to come back to my early theme, though, as to why I think you're a city builder, even though you haven't laid a hand to a brick <laughs> on a building site. I, I want to explain yeah. that. I want to come back to that. I, I'll get there through talking a bit more about this stuff that you've just an- analysed, because I think that the when I was working between 25 and 2011 on government urban regeneration policy, which ended up actually that we, we, we were the, we call them city regions and they ended up as city deals. And, uh, I actually think the conservatives did a better job than we were going to do because they believed in devolution and we didn't not really, uh, because the, the labor party being a party of equity before, before democracy, before, not before democracy, but before decentralization, essentially, we weren't entirely sure whether we wanted to decentralize in case that meant lower standards, you see. So, so, so we, we had a bit of a, a barrier to that thinking, I think, which the Tories didn't, didn't have. And I think therefore did do some genuine devolution things on the basis of our original thinking. But what, what I did also think, Richard, because I'd been involved in, in lobbying and advocacy for getting new projects into East London, um, I, I suddenly sort of felt that, uh, in a sense, we were almost too good at doing that, <laughs> too good at doing that, and that actually I didn't believe that the UK government, even under my own government, really believed they could do something to shift the dial uh, about the performance of these places outside London. You know, this so that the levelling up ambition was never very real before, even though uh, I don't forget Boris for the moment, but but the actual desire, the desire was there to make sure that people weren't poor. Definitely, but I didn't. I didn't think we were confident that we knew how to spatially rebalance the UK. So we, I, I'm not sure we do know how to do this. But I, but I think we we had ideas around town centre renewal, urban renewal, uh, estate renewal. Uh, I think we we understand a lot a lot more more than I think Boris came to understand about leveling up. That became just a, a slogan. But I still don't think we really really knew exactly what was going on in the country that had disempowered these places, and therefore and a long, how we could do this. There's a long history of you know since the Second World War. There's a long history of you know, efforts to 
yeah. you know, put yeah. office development certificates, industrial development permits, which sought to take stuff out of the overheating southeast. And they never quite, never quite, never quite gelled. It, it led to the growth of Croydon as an out of London centre, um, but it never really led to a, a great and a great uh, regional shift. I mean, I think that the challenge with levelling up is that I think doing the town centre regeneration, doing those things that just make doing a state regeneration, doing things that make these places better places to live, and just basically refresh and revive. Um, centres that you know have been hit very hard by economic change. I think that's something very positive. It gets a certain way forward. I think the challenge is, and and you can do that across the country. The challenge is when you take some difficult decisions about where you're going to focus investment. Where are you going to say is going to be? Let's say there's going to be one big northern city that's going to yeah. be um, the centre, and others will be satellites to it. You don't get Brighton complaining about the dominance of London. You don't get Cambridge and Oxford complaining about the dominance of London. But that decision becomes very difficult. When you look at the levelling up material the government's put out earlier this year, it talks of there being a leading global city in every region. Well, you're instantly back to spreading the jam everywhere, and that's just not how it works, and that's not how... I mean, I don't think even Stalin could have decreed a leading, leading global city in every Soviet. No. Um, so <clears throat> there's... Um, I think the challenge is, as you said earlier, it's the challenge between trying to do a big regional shift and trying to ensure equity and all boats must rise together. And that's really difficult to get right. And I don't think any government's done it very well. Well, it's interesting. that's one of the reasons why I think the London mayoralty has been quite successful, because I think what, one of the things that Ken did, Ken Livingston, for those, who was the first mayor of the new, new London, was effectively managed to win the argument or to bully the argument that they should put a lot of policy focus and investment focus on East London. Um, and so I, so I think where there's, a, where there's a kind of democratic legitimacy where he came to the power saying more or less he was going to try and do some of these things, he, he didn't forget the other places, although you always lose power in London if you forget the outer boroughs mm. everywhere, and he has done that. You know, sort of, but essentially, I do think that that, that, that showed that to, to some degree there, there has been the kind of shift of investment and activity in London that I would like to have seen in the rest of the UK in terms of a, a, a bit of a rebalancing going on. I mean, I, I'm not on top of the numbers, but uh, you, you go to Stratford and you go to Greenwich, and, and these are different places to where they were 25, 30 years ago. And it's not quite the same when you go uh, to some of the northern cities or some of the valley, valley towns. You know, In fact, I feel as though the gap has widened between the metropolitan successful areas. And in fact, the numbers suggest that they have an, a great indicator of this. Is back in the 1970s, if you were to buy a house in Chelsea, you could buy 40 in the valleys of South Wales. Today, you might buy 140 with the, the same yeah. house. In, in, so it's it, the things are getting even more challenging, it seems to me. Now, why do I think that you are a city builder? Let's go back first. So not just, I'm not going to do anything about the fact that I've known you for too long. You know, I'm just going to say that the, the moment that you became, you actually helped set up. You were in the, you were a grey blur, as they called Stalin, within the bureaucracy that set up the, <laughs> the Greater London Authority. You were advising, supporting the, the first chief executive of that. Then you went on to, I think, soon, a couple of years after, to actually work on setting up the uh, mayor's design, uh, what was it called? What was the official title? Architecture and Urbanism Unit. Yeah, so, Architecture and Urbanism yeah. Unit, under, under our friend uh, Richard Rogers, the... Uh, the great uh, recently departed architect, who you then wrote a book about, which I or with, mm -hmm. which I want to talk about. Then you helped. Then you helped. Uh, you know, deliver design, deliver the Olympics as well. You were involved in all that stuff. So you've been, you know, you've been in and around Richard. You know, this kind of behind the scenes, which I'm very interested in. And we <laughs> our, our paths crossed when I was attempting to do some of the same. And uh, you know, we more or less agreed, but didn't always. <laughs> And then, but I want to talk about the first moment, right? So as city builder, you end up helping to create the new democratically elected London institution, right? So when was that? What was that like? So um, in my long career as a grey blur or as yeah. um, a zealot. Yeah, it's not as a grey blur. This is a great career. Right, you know, <laughs> yeah. he did. He did all right for himself. Yeah, um, yeah. A bit of a mixed result. But Mr. Yeah. and Mrs. Stalin um, were very proud of their son's career. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, as you may remember, Tim, I met you actually in my, my previous role, which was working at an organisation called the Audit Commission, which yeah. is a mixture between a, a think tank was a mixture between a think yeah. tank and a regulator of local government in England and Wales. 
And I was on the research side of that, and I'd done some work looking at you know, urban regeneration, economic development projects okay. in cities across England. And one of the things that became clear then was, was a sort of challenge of political leadership. And you went to some places like Manchester, where you had a very powerful chief executive Tremendous. and leader, yeah. Howard Bernstein, you know. Yeah. And you went to other places where that just wasn't there. And you could start to see some of the things we just talked about, some of the cities that were starting to reassert themselves. And so when I heard, as it, and it was a policy of the incoming Labour government that there was going to be a new city authority for London, I thought this was incredibly exciting and thought I want to get to work on this. So I went and joined the setup team, uh, which was run by a former audit, audit commission employee called Bob Chilton. Um, and, you know, when the first mayor was elected, um, Ken Livingston in May uh, 2000, um, after a um, very uh, fraught campaign where he um, been not selected as the official Labour Party candidate and then stood as an independent, uh, leading to lots of um, vicious um, uh, accusations flying one way or another. Um, Kellings was elected as an independent, beating the big party machines, and I was working in his first year as his you know, private secretary, essentially, sort of making sure that when he pulled on levers as mayor and tried to say, how do I make this happen, that there was a way to make things happen, that he had the right people with him, that he had the right advice. Um, and that was great fun for a year. And it was interesting because we were making everything up on the hop, basically, um, and setting up meetings with ministers. And he brought in a whole bunch of people with him, most of whom were campaigners who'd never run anything in their lives. They disrupted meetings quite often. They were good old-fashioned lefties. And there were a couple of them, people like Neil Coleman, who'd been a Westminster councillor, who did actually know how to do things. But a lot of them were quite green in actual politics. So it's working out, how do we get this relatively small organisation with pretty small budget? It controlled the police budget, but didn't have much discretion over it. It had the transport authority, which is a big power. It had some planning powers. How do you bring these powers together? And it had some economic development powers. How do you bring these powers together to try to steer and to shift course of a big city like London. Um, and, you know, looking at the numbers, which I did just before this call, you know, the GLA's budget is 4% of London's GDP. So you're really having to be tactically clever to change the course of a city. Um, the big forces, the big forces of private investment, the big forces of public sector spending are not in the mayor's control, but the mayor has to find a way to try to mould those to his, 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 uh, his or her um, objectives. And when Livingston became mayor, and you know, to, to a certain extent his, his successors, you know, there was at least a great deal of interest in London. London was starting to thrive again. It was starting to recover. There was a lot of investment coming into the city. There was a lot of developers who wanted to do deals. And the mayor was someone who could talk to them about, yes, I'll let you build this skyscraper, but I do want to see it near a transport hub. I do want to see this quality of architecture. I do want to see this level of affordable housing. And Ken Livingston was pretty adept at doing some of those deals. Um, and in a way, catching and steering um, the investment coming into the city so that it delivered the type of outcomes he wanted to see, which were, yes, investment in the city, but also more social justice, uh, better environmental responsibility, and a better urban environment. So that's where we started that in the GLA. And then after about a year, um, Richard Rogers came in to see uh, Livingston. And he just completed a report called Towards an Urban Renaissance with the Urban Task Force, um, which was commissioned by the new Labour government to, the original brief was to look at how we could accommodate more housing, but he actually took it, put that on his head and said, how do we revive our cities? How do we bring life back to our cities? Because if we do that, we can build the houses, but we need the cities that have life in them to do that. Um, and Ken said to him, and I won't do my Ken Livingston impersonation there, uh, Ken said to him, I want you to do this in London. So uh, we set up this thing called the Architecture and, Urban, Architecture and Urbanism Unit, um, which was a small team, originally me and Richard and the PA, to be honest, um, trying to see how we could instill better architecture and better urban design across London projects. Um, it was difficult to start with because I think Richard felt that he could be literally the architect of the city and could um, define what happened and what didn't happen. That's not how you can do things in the UK. I think he'd looked at Barcelona where it does, does work a lot more like that and had worked a lot more like that. But we found a way of influencing the policy, what went in the London plan, which is the big planning document for the city, um, how that value design quality, how that linked transport and development together. Um, but also getting involved in 
projects, getting involved where local authorities were developing plans. And this is where we got involved in some of the East London projects where local authorities were thinking about their strategy. You know, how do they bring in more housing? How do they concentrate development around existing transport and make the case for new transport? Um, so we started working alongside uh, local authorities across London. Well, let's just before we pause, let's go back to that yeah. because I think for people, because there'll Sorry. be an international audience listening to this and and... Uh, so the London model of mayor yeah. was invented by the new Labour government, and which wasn't always brilliant, actually, at doing constitutional change. It, it wanted it. It was brilliant mm. at being radical, but it wasn't quite brilliant at necessarily working out how you should do it. And we changed the model again uh, in 2005, and I was involved in that, actually. Mm. We'll yes. back to that. But, but, but the, uh, <laughs> and I've written more or less entertainingly about it for a book that you put out uh, recently. But I want to say a bit more about that model. So one of the things I, I thought was great, you know, and I think the evidence would, would show this, that the, you know, London, when I came to London in the 80s, they just abolished the Greater London Council and they didn't restore anything that looked like a strategic control of London for 20 years. And, you know, whether or not it's a coincidence or not, London went backwards significantly in, in that period. Everybody subjectively, whatever your evidence says, but the evidence supports it, but people's feeling about it looking back, it drifted as a, as a, is a city with you know like like uh, Churchill said about I think it was Blamange you know he said it has no theme you know it it sort of it needed you know it could have been eaten mess you know but anyway so it was a mess and our friend Ken brutal as he could be boorish as he could be loved London uh, actually and was quite good at getting some big stuff done and there are a couple of things I think were really quite important so his emphasis on inclusionary zoning as we would call it in Australia, you know, the the fact that he would not bend on, let us say, more than forty percent of any development should be social housing, social affordable housing. He would do deals, he would be flexible, but he would not bend from the target. Uh, and that scares the living daylights out of people in the private sector in places like Australia, where they they, 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 we don't do, I mean, you know, the, a, a company doing 35% social housing in London for the London mayor, whether it's a Tory or not, and Boris did the same, would do zero in an Australian city because they're not made to do so by planning law. There is no political accountability that makes them do it. And there's no um, straightforward way of enabling them to factor it into their land purchasing strategy because uh, they, in London, they know that they're going to be charged the, the levy essentially. So they buy the land net of that social obligation. So it's a residual land value proposition. So, so you know, the public sector probably loses a, a bit of what it might have got out of it in order to get this public benefit from the private sector, right? That, that, uh, and the developers do not lose a penny on the deal because they pay less for the land. And I really want to stress this, that Ken Livingston was very strong about that, but all the boroughs, even the conservative boroughs, more or less are delivering that objective under his, in his kind of, and under the mayoralty's demands. And he, even though it flexed a bit under Boris, it was still five or six times more than we would be doing in an Australian city. So I, I just want to stress that. He was, Ken had some really strong views and this whole strategic shift to East London was very important. And your work, in the, I'm very interested, just say a little bit more about, um, so what were the greatest hits do you think of having the, the architect and urbanism unit? And then it sort of morphed afterwards into design for London, which is a slightly different mm -hmm. piece. But what do you think the greatest hits of this kind of emphasis that Ken had on design? You are listening to the Grimshaw podcast, building the city series. I think, can I just, before I do that, yeah. can I just, Pick up one one thing you just said, which was, you know, I think London did have a tough time between uh, the abolition of the Great London Council and the establishment of the Great London Authority. So that eighty six to two thousand period. Yeah. Um, I think there was actually a gal interesting galvanising effect though as well. I think by the early nineties, when London was clearly drifting and right. a lot of problems, it galvanised boroughs that either the, the thirty three uh, municipalities in London. It galvanised them to come together with the private sector to set right. up organisations like London First yeah. and to start art making the case for London. So it did knock London back, but actually it, it sowed so sowed the foundations, laid the foundations for actually. A stronger, I think, would be called sort of a good growth alliance within the city. Um, one of the early campaigns of London First was the restoration of a London, of London government, right? It was indeed. Indeed. Yes, so, yeah. um, anyway, well, but, sorry, that's just right. There were other things going on, yeah. but I still think there needed to be strategic direction of the city, indeed. democratically accountable, right? So, I agree. 
So greatest hits of the urbanism and architecture unit or the greatest approach? Hits. Greatest hits, I think, were, um, yeah, I think the design policies we got into the London plan were pretty powerful. Um, I think some of the, um, we had a program, very ambitious program called 100 New Public Spaces, which was modelled on something they were, had done in Barcelona, which was yeah, 100 new squares uh, for the 1992 Olympics. Um, and I think about 15 or 20 were built, but they're good public spaces across London, you know, particularly in areas, there's one in Brixton, there's ones in Dalston. They're in areas that aren't the, necessarily the high profile, tourist rich areas of the central city. They're producing decent public space um, in neighbourhoods across London. Um, I think with that, there was good design guidance on streets across London. Again, we have 33 different boroughs, so you can have 33 different street looks. And I think that's been picked up. But I think actually laying the foundations for some of the change in East London was probably one of the biggest achievements. Um, and, and I will talk more about East London. You were obviously very active there as well. But you know, starting to, I suppose by the early 2000s, there was some interest in East London. Canary Wharf, which is the big second financial centre. That was the first wave. Canary Wharf was the oh, first wave. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And there were... And there were plans coming forward for schemes like Stratford City, where they were going to have alongside um, a, a new centre, they were going to have the, which you pushed for very hard, the new uh, Channel Tunnel uh, rail link station. And there were plans for Greenwich Peninsula around the Millennium Dome. But it was quite bitty. It was quite fragmented. And actually trying to sort of bring some of these together to say, what is the sum of these parts? Um, which I know you were trying to do from the Thames Gateway London Partnership perspective, yeah. trying to think what is the nature of this place, and particularly doing some of the early work, thinking about the Lower Lee Valley, which would become the centre of London's uh, London yeah. 2012 bid for the Olympics. So I think that was helpful both in you know starting to develop some of those plans, but also in creating a slightly different way of thinking about things within local authorities, thinking about more three-dimensionally about what's the shape of this place and the nature of this place that we're building, and thinking across borders. So I think those are some of the big um, yeah. I think we influenced a lot of Transport for London projects in terms of spending, but a lot of those were sort of street junctions and things like that. There's only so much you can do architecturally. So I think those projects, but also a way of thinking that's permeated London government now, and there are organisations like Urban Design London and um, Public Practice that put young um, early career architects into local authorities to help them think through design stuff those are some of the legacy of, of i suppose i think suppose that change of thinking in london but to remind people and remind me actually this is not what you study at university you're not an urban designer you're not a planner no, no. What, what did you study <laughs> i guess what did you study i studied philosophy and ancient history so um yeah. the thing is people downgrade you know but both of us know about cities because of our history uh, basis so i think that's absolutely right um what I was going to say was, no, so Ke I was inspired by the London government model. When I came to Sydney, I was determined that when I was lucky enough to, in 2011, to become chief executive of the committee for Sydney, that we would we would change the governance and the planning regime in, in Sydney. And we ended up uh, with the Greater Sydney Commission, which is uh, which was an attempt, and I think Australia's first metropolitan planning authority, right, that was meant to be a a kind of land use and transport integration authority. Uh, and I've been inspired by the London model. I was quite, you know, I was allowed to be quite influential uh, in helping to design that, partly because of my experience in London and also because I helped redesign them. We, we gave new powers. Mm. You know, you wrote, you, yeah. you wrote about this and I've written about this, but we ended up giving new powers to Ken, who as a Labour renegade, we were, we were supposed to hate, by the way. Uh, we didn't ever love him. But we did think the model was working and we should get behind and give it more powers, which we did. So I, I am a big believer in the kind of that you can get that some people talk about place a lot. And I completely get that. And they, they and the, but they don't understand why you can't sort place management. out. And the answer is because you haven't got the democratic uh, cross government color, uh, uh, vehicle to do it. You know, so that the you, you never end up doing what the community wants in a place. They always hate it because there's no accountability in these mm. these non metropolitan governance models, whereas London had some structural accountability for change, it seemed to me. And the mayor, you know, Ken, in the end, lost in the end because he, he lost some of the outer boroughs. But let us just say that I, I'm a big believer in that kind of model I could see. But even though I was very close to the boroughs, the councils in London, that Ken, by the way, didn't seem to like at all. And uh, always it struck me, wished that they didn't exist at all because mm. he was, you know, he was 
a believer in strong version of metropolitan government, and you know, but I don't, you know, this is uh, by the way, this is a view from below. The, the, when the when the view, when the boroughs were asked who did they prefer, that some of them preferred. I have to say, working with Boris personally, right? Hmm. But they, but but I think intellectually and in policy terms, Ken was always the one that we that we want really should be working with because he had a passion for London and knew what should be done. I think. I, the amazing thing about Ken was if you went to a meeting with him to talk about somewhere in uh, an obscure bit of Raynham yeah. in out yeah. London. He'd been there. Um, and you sort of pull out a map and say, well, have you met? You've probably, and you say, oh, yeah, there's that, um, that calf around the corner that does yeah. really good bacon. Yeah. I don't he'd know, he, he knew every, every corner of the city. I think, you know, there's a long tradition in two-tier London government. It was the same with the GLC of the two tiers hating each other. And the GLC had a lot of conflict written into it as well. I think the thing about Livingston is that he he had, and you referred to this earlier, he had a degree of political courage. Um, yeah, yeah. It actually became, I think, perhaps political foolhardiness later yeah. on. But yeah. you know, to push through, we haven't mentioned, I suppose, one of the crowning achievements of his mayoralty was the congestion charge, the Absolutely. charge to drive into central London, yeah. um, which you know, is the sort of thing that's hugely controversial and has a huge number of people uh, with very good causes, people who work at night, nurses, butchers working in the meat markets, complaining they're being, um, uh, that it's going to damage them and damage their livelihoods. And can push that through against, you know, having got a mandate from it, he pushed that through and said, we want to do this. And actually it bedded in pretty well and yeah. people got on with it. And similarly, um, we'll perhaps talk more about this in a moment, Pushing for the Olympics to be in East well, London, yeah, prioritising East yeah, London. That's, that's, said, yeah, that would never it, have happened it, without Ken. It would never have happened without the London mayoralty. Yeah, exactly. Never. And and that focus on East London, which I think for the Olympic movement, the people from the British Olympic Association who are wanting to do a bid and said, well, why aren't we using Wembley? Yeah. This seemed a bit idiosyncratic, this focus on East London. But actually, when we were in Singapore in 2005 making the bid, it was the focus on East London. It was the story we could tell about the impact this would have. Well, on let's let's turn there. Let's drive past the city. Let's talk um, about that. Which one is which one yeah. is for us? Well, you know, um, let's talk about that because um, we, we kept on interacting in this period, in, and it was like a slightly weird because we're friends before all this, you know. And then we bump into each other. I was either working for Lendlease on the Olympic Village, or I was working with the boroughs on getting an Olympic legacy strategy. You were inside the system. You were inside the London and the ODA system, and, and actually shared a lot of the values, I think, that, uh, and I think part of the reason why I do think it became a successful legacy Olympics is because you and people like you, and there weren't 20, there were a few, knew exactly what should, should be done and helped get it, frankly. Right? So, and I remember, for those that want to know how government can really work, you know, sometimes it, it does matter that if you know people and you share the same values you, and you can try and make the system do something. And I think that you... You were very, you know, sometimes people matter in systems, right? And I think Ken mattered at another level. And I do think people like you and our friends like Paul Brickell in, in, in Newham and, you know, in a council in East London where the Olympics was, these people mattered because they had a vision for what the Olympics could do for, for the area and set about selling the idea of the Olympics coming to that area because it would be produce a bigger return than many other Olympics in terms of social benefit and the transformation of a city, right? So, so in a sense, that story that we'd been collectively developing before the Olympic bid of East London as the, the you know, where you should do, want to do good and, and raise uh, the performance and equity of the city, that, that fed into uh, the bid, and it became the kind of underpinning. And you're right, the people forget, you know, because everybody claims that, oh, yeah, it was obvious that we should go to East London. I mean, the, the traditional and conventional sporting authorities, even though they're individuals who are really good in, in all of them, didn't really see it. <laughs> I just thought, no, no, you're going to wreck, you know, what? Uh, you know, London, it's going to come to London. Don't spoil it by sending it to East London. Um, but, of course, you go to Singapore, and it becomes the story, right? It becomes the yeah. reason... Why we why we kind of get it, <laughs> right? Once they got that as the story, it was it was great. But you you, you, you mentioned Paul Brickell, and I think it's important to say that Livingston said he wanted it to be in East London. There was a core of people in East London, yeah, starting to tell a story, and yeah. uh, you know Paul Brickell was part of that. You were part yeah. of that, starting to tell a story, particularly about this area, which we probably ought to describe slightly, the Lower Lee Valley, yeah, yeah, go um, on. which is. On, you know, it's got all, everything going against it in many ways as a site for a big event. It's got it's on the boundary of four different local administrations. <laughs> that's, that's a critical it's, point. It's actually 
uh, even better than that is actually the historic boundary yeah. um, of London. It's the historic edge of London in Victorian yeah. times. It's even the historic edge uh, between um, Saxon-controlled England and Dane-controlled England Absolutely. in the, uh, in yeah, the yeah. first millennium BC. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, post. Uh, but also, AD, all the hostile it. uses in London went east of the Lee. Yeah. So all, so, the, yeah, all the smelly bits. Smelly bits. Smelly bits, particularly if they needed water. So anything that required mills and drainage and yeah, yeah. You know, all went there. And it's on marshland and it had sewers running through it and electricity pylons crisscrossing. It had railway yards and, you know, it had a hell of a lot of infrastructure cutting through it, but very little serving it. On the other hand, you had these strangely isolated little islands of land amidst all these rivers and canals where you suddenly find yourself in this oasis but then you'd look behind you and there was a pile of tires on fire that had been on fire for uh, several years by then the pile of fridges in the other direction so a really messy place and the place that developers were starting to get interested in and that was the place where we started doing some master planning work from the architecture and urbanism unit so when london's olympic bid um, started being uh, discussed um i was perhaps one of the people in the building in city hall who'd been tromping around uh, the lee valley and knowing what was going on there so I started getting involved and that was what was exciting was from the GLA's perspective, it was being led by people who were interested in the regeneration, interested in the opportunities um, that we could, we could get out of that um, and the change we can make. But that was building on work done by people like uh, Paul Brickell to um, start realizing that vision. So, yeah, it was top down, but it was top down building on that sort of energy from below. It was, and it was yeah, it was more of a multi-tier thing rather than just top down. I think I think it was uh, I, I think it was a genuinely uh, it's funny a de facto alliance without them all loving each other yeah. uh, was, <laughs> yeah, was, was very powerful. I love the the, the Lee was improbably bad. <laughs> I mean, the, the, um, when I first went to London, you know, my first job uh, running Tensio London Partnership was actually to promote about eight or nine big brownfield sites in London. And I, I couldn't see how we could do this. And in fact, we couldn't do this without the Olympics and things like that. So we changed the emphasis uh, from marketing sites that were nowhere near uh, development to what infrastructure do we need to get into these places to make them a product? Right. And that's that was the shift in TGLP. So we we're on that way. So we knew the kinds of transport kit that would yeah. make a difference. So the channel, channel tunnel railing was one. Crosswell became another. The, you know, DLR, DLR links and all the transport is hugely important to structuring and integrating that part of East London with the rest of it, as it were. Yeah. Um, so you went to Singapore? I didn't go to Singapore. No, I was when when they were all in Singapore, hobnobbing with David Beckham and Tony Blair and yeah. uh, schmoozing. Um, I was uh, watching on TV, and I was the person who, when everyone leapt up and cheered, I did have a few drinks. But then I had to go back into the office to start um, sending out uh, uh, pitch documents to uh, headhunters because we need to recruit the chief executive of the Olympic Delivery Authority. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, in the months just before. The bid, it started looking like actually we, we could win this thing. I think a lot of the civil servants thought, let's come a gracious second to, to Paris. That was well, this is such an important idea. You know, yeah. there were some people in London, in East London, who thought, ah, uh, you know, I remember, I, I remember, and I won't name names because they're all lovely and blue, but they many of them didn't want it because they'd remembered the mean. London Docklands Development Corporation, which had taken over their area and had yeah. shoved them out of the way. You know, so they wanted to bid, but they didn't want to win some of them. Right, because yeah. the bid helps get you attention and investment anyway. Right, yeah. And I remember in the days after, days after we won, um, someone saying to me, and there was another agency you'll remember called the London Thames Gateway Development Corporation, which was grand plan. I helped create that, and I'm, and it, I, it was a dud. It's my dud. Yeah. Grand, grand plans, and very little capacity to deliver any of them. Yeah. And I remember being told that we'd ruin their strategy by winning the Olympics. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> um, we had ruined their strategy because their strategy yeah. was was to do to, was to hope that something might turn up, and we no, were no, something that a, turned up. This is a great um, lesson about Olympic Games that the uh, they 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 the, in their best they accelerate the strategy that you should have had in place in the first place, right? In my view, that they they if you just bring them to do something completely off the wall and new, they will fail. Yeah. We were lucky because that that part of East London, Thamesgate, we had had a pre-existing regional strategy called RPG 9A. I know it sounds a bit arcane, you know, but essentially we had a rough idea before the Olympics of the kinds of things we should do. What then became really good, and you were also involved, and this is where I want to go next, 
is that the that this became not just the like urban regeneration Olympics in a physical sense. This was meant to be the legacy games for communities, right? Mm-hmm. And so legacy planning, and for those people doing the Brisbane Olympics, and essentially legacy planning began be- essentially before the Olympics were were won in a sense, but but certainly were a big part from twenty five onwards and you know you and i met in lots of meetings where you know we we're the boroughs and ken and the government got together and there were lots of committees and blah, blah blah lots of collaboration around a strategy to exploit the olympics for community benefit that was a big part of it from the beginning you were you were very involved in that you wrote stuff about that yes and i think that that was that was really important that was set as an objective from you know when we pl- when we did the master plan for the olympics we did two master plans. We did the master plan for the Olympics and the master plan for the legacy. And though it would have been hard to deliver, the plan was to deliver something like the legacy, something like the new infrastructure, the new housing going into the Lower Lee Valley, whether or not we won the Olympics. So the idea was there was a sort of with Olympic scenario and without Olympic scenario from the outset. Um, I think we were a little bit, to be honest, I think we were a little bit late in actually setting up the legacy delivery bodies, which were set up around... So we won in 2005, and we set up the legacy delivery bodies around 2010, 2011 in that yeah, first yeah, form. Yeah, yeah. I think that could have been done a bit sooner. There were some decisions that were taken, for example, about the stadium, which could perhaps have been taken slightly slightly differently. We did set up something that, you know, part one of the principles of the London Olympics was that everything was going to either be a temporary structure or it was going to have a clearly defined and funded legacy use afterwards, because... I'd been to Athens, one of my favourite cities, obviously, having studied ancient history. I'd been to Athens um, in, I think, the winter of 2001, and I'd seen the sort of desolate, sort of windswept um, remnants of their Olympic Games. We need to do something very different. So everything was, there was a clearly defined legacy use for everything. And alongside that, uh, there was a lot of work with the boroughs to actually say, well, how will we make sure this actually benefits people who live in this area? This area again, historically, was one of the poorest areas of London, an area of London that, to all intents and purposes, operated and looked like an area of Northern England. It had the same yeah. levels of child yeah. poverty, had the same levels of unemployment. I remember taking a bunch of Northern MPs around the Lowerley Valley you know, before the Olympic works had started, and one of them said, I didn't realise there were places like this in London, because yeah. Yeah. part of the challenge in Britain is sometimes that Northern MPs come straight down to Westminster, they go to Parliament, they eat out in some nice restaurants and they go home. They don't realise there are bits of London that look a lot more like their constituency. So huge challenge to actually get um, benefit for local people to, in a way, make sure that the Games didn't simply displace people and replace them with a new population, but actually could gentrify from within, is the phrase I sometimes use, that you'd actually get people who would actually do well and be able to stay in the area because they'd be able to get jobs, get economic opportunities from the games. They'd be able to find housing that actually suited them as they became better off rather than these areas of East London that were traditionally always an area where people moved into when they were freshly arrived in London, when they were relatively poor. And then within one generation, within two generations, maybe within three generations, as they did better, they'd move out. So yeah, this is trying to sort of change that, change that sort of, um, you always need the flow in to change that flow in east london so there's a whole program with the boroughs of seeking to set a plan for convergence convergence of these boroughs with the london average which sounds like a very um tame ambition we we strive to be average but actually you know it was a really important ambition to sort of leveling up within the city essentially well i mean um as the consultant who wrote the first document for the five borough unit which was called the convergence (laughs) agenda uh, I was in the room with three of us. Our great friend, uh, Eleanor Young, uh, was oh, in yes. the room with me when we were uh, with the, the guy who was running the five horsepower unit, Roger Taylor, who's a clever guy. And we were mm. trying to work out what the organizing principle should be of instead of random projects, you know. And we, we came up with essentially a version of leveling up that we called convergence ad- agenda, which doesn't sound very exciting. But as you say, fight for the right to be average in a, in a, <laughs> in a city where people's outcomes were whatever the, the great phrase that was used. But essentially, when you went every mile eastwards you went in East London, you lost a year of your life. You know, so, so leveling up was quite an exciting agenda. So look, a uh, couple of things we forget on the way uh, for an Australian audience, but internationally, the guy who was... Uh, put in charge of the Olympic Delivery Authority was indeed 
uh, now Sir David Higgins, uh, who who had been head of the great national urban regeneration outfit in England called uh, uh, English, <laughs> English Partnership. English Partnership. It's a great build up, but I forgot. Um, but he had been chief executive of Lendlease in Australia and a huge kind of figure because uh, Lendlease is so important in, in Australia. And I remember asking the local authorities in London because uh, I ended up working for. Uh, Lendley's on the Olympic Athletes Village and the chief executive there, Dan Labad, who's a great bloke who's now gone off to run the Crown, Crown Estate, you know. And I remember uh, saying to people locally, why, 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 in a, and the government, why did we appoint Lendley's and why is Lendley's so all over this, in, in a sense? And the answer was very interesting, you see, because there weren't, many, there weren't any other British companies that could do the kind of big city sort of construction that these people were familiar with doing because Lendlease is so big and so important in Australia and knows the city game. You know, it, it's kind of knows the various ways in which you have to work with all the compending forces, very difficult terrain sometimes, market, public sector, all that stuff. They were very used to big city projects. They'd done the Olympics in Sydney, but it wasn't just that. They were like a big city outfit, really. And actually, in English conditions were not creating companies uh, that were so integrated and so so large as this that could take on the risk in, in in this way. But the other thing was, very interesting, the East London boroughs, people like Newham that were led by great figures like Robin Wells, who was not easy to please, let me tell you. <laughs> he basically said, they, they, they're actually, they're good to us. They treat us with respect, right? So uh, just for, again, it's very interesting that, that, that um, the traditional English private sector building culture was not deemed to be respectable towards the political process in the way that this this Australian upstarts as we're coming into the system. I, I say no more. I don't know enough about that, but I think there's something in that. I want to talk about before we go any further. We've got to move towards a conclusion here, but I want to do. <laughs> I want to talk about. I want to talk a conclusion in all senses, right? I want to bring you know some 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 coordinated ideas over this stuff, right? So one is around you 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 did something, and I know you've had it in your head for a while that you might. You were going to write something about city builders as a series of things, right? But you did, you've so far done a really, I think, a really beautiful uh, book with uh, Richard Rogers, uh, which you did. You know, we, 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 we you, I don't think we knew that he was going to die so soon, but I think you felt that he was not, he was, you know, he was quietly in his dotage, as it were. But he'd been obviously a brilliant architect and a brilliant civic figure. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, but I then want to end with your reflections on your own role as a kind of behind the scenes city builder. I want to give some people, other people ideas about, you know, how you can be effective in, in, in these systems. What do you think is a, is a, is a good way of getting stuff done? You know, my secret mastermind, you know, activity that I would go in the chair and talk about was getting stuff done in government. Right. So I'd like you to talk about that. So Richard Rogers, then getting stuff done in government. So Richard, I mean, in around 2014, I'd, um, uh, I'd been doing Olympic stuff for 10 years, and I'd been in the legacy organisation, strategy director there. And I just wanted a bit of a change. And um, it happened that Richard Rogers put on an exhibition at the Royal Academy about his political thinking as much as about his architecture and the ideas, I suppose, that underpinned his architecture. And a publisher wrote to him and said, that was really beautiful. Can you write a book based on it? And they offered him lots of good writers. Um, but he said he'd prefer to have someone who he knew. I'd written, I'd ghostwritten things for him. Um, Richard is a brilliant man, um, was a brilliant man, um, but he's, and he's interested in ideas. He reads voraciously, but he's, um, he was very dyslexic. Um, and so putting together a coherent argument for a newspaper article or for a book is very difficult for him, um, which isn't to downplay his brilliance. Um, so he said he preferred to have someone who he knew and someone who knew how he thought and knew how he wanted to write things. And it was me. And, you know, he said he was sort of coming towards an ending himself. He was very resistant to the idea of writing a memoir. He didn't want to write a memoir because that suggested that it was going to be, um, uh, that it was a full stop to his career. And I think he wanted to perhaps do something that was more a semicolon. He wanted to do something that was more like a manifesto. So in the end, we sort of um, created a sort of blended book that did talk sometimes uh, chronologically, sometimes not about his career, but tried to talk more about ideas and his ideas of what a good city is, what a good citizen is, you know, how buildings should work for everyone. And then, you know, even on a more sort of abstracted level, you know, issues of global inequality and climate crisis. So it was an amazing experience. He's a, he's a, he's a wonderful man. I mean, 
notoriously, he was also not very good at drawing. So he managed to become an architect. Without this is an amazing story about Richard Rogers, the great you know, architect who did yeah. the Pompidou Centre. You know, he, he, can't, he can't write particularly and he can't draw particularly. <laughs> so so exactly. what makes him an architect? <laughs> Um, but he's got a feeling for he's got a feeling for the city. He's got a vision for how things. I mean, it's an underplay thing. He's got a feeling for the city, a vision of how things could be. He's got a curiosity about uh, potential um, and an imagination that was pretty uh, unbridled. And he's got the ability. And I'm flattering myself in a backhanded way here to surround himself with really good people and to. I've seen him critting architecture. To, send, to get into the detail, to send it back, send it back again until it's right. And certainly that was my experience working with him in the nicest possible way. He may not be able to write, but he could certainly critique everything I wrote and make sure that it was as good as it could be. I mean, and that, that's an incredible skill, I think, for not just a manager, but a leader to be able to sort of surround yourself with good people and drive them to get the best out of them. And I think that's how he's worked through his career. I mean, that can come over as quite heavy handed to some people, but, you know, Generally, he inspired a lot of affection and you know, positivity among people who worked for him because he made them better and he, he helped them. Well, he, he helped them to achieve their best. I, I remember he, he certainly was uh, could, could, could hold one's feet to the fire when he when he wanted. I mean, I was working on the government side. I was sent in to negotiate down from his 136 recommendations in the urban <laughs> task force. To, I said, Richard, it's conventional in our culture to. I, I, I said this to do Ted. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and he looked at me like I was something the cat had dragged in, you know. I mean, he just he thought it did. He, uh, he did. I believe I got on with him perfectly well, but at that moment he treated, he just viewed me with utter contempt as the usual political hack, you know. And I think it was I was trying to basically say that I knew how the system which I want to come to. I knew the system would spit out 135 recommendations, but they might be able to incorporate 10. That's all I was really trying to get him to see. But he was. Very uncompromising, and I think absolutely a necessary figure because of that, right? Because yeah. you know it's up for me, people like me, to be temporizers and compromisers and make shit happen. But he needs to keep to the vision so that we do better. So uh, you know, he did. I mean, what, which very few architects have done. He's prepared to spend time in meetings with people like you yeah. and yeah. me and government yeah. ministers, banging the table and asking why things can't be better. Most yeah. architects I've spoken to just shrug their shoulders and say, these people are impossible. They don't have any idea about anything. Yeah. Richard would, when I worked with him at GLA, he would tend to uh, threaten to resign roughly once every four or five weeks. You know, why am I wasting my time here? There's pointless. No one's listening to a word I say. Um, and then we'd usually go out for lunch or go out to the pub and yeah, he, yeah, yeah, he'd yeah. calm down and I'd say, do you still want to resign? And he'd say, well, no, 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 maybe we'll just have a meeting with Ken and see if we can push it a bit further. So he did have the commitment to stay in there. And I've seen him do this with clients, to stay in there and carry on pushing until he gets what he wanted. So but you remind you know, us all that the, of the architect as a city builder and as a, yeah. a, a, with a civic responsibility, but also the architect as, as business-minded because <laughs> I think you and I have talked about this before, but he was often capable of, of doing great civic stuff and then saying, I can build that for you. <laughs> you know, he, he still remembered that he had a company to run. And I think that's not, nothing wrong with it because that's the real world, right? So now, yeah. what about you? So I think you've been uh, like leading from behind for a while within the governance system. I do think that, and that's why you're here. So got some thoughts about how one be, how, how does one be effective? I think, <clears throat> I think understanding, you know, this sounds very basic, but understanding the levers that you do and don't have. I mean, we can all produce, we can all produce strategies and vision documents, and that's that is something important as well. But understanding where the levers are and being able to be tactical and opportunistic while having strategic vision. By which I mean, looking at things like, you know, in the Olympic Park. Yeah, you know, we had plans for a legacy, which was originally going to be largely housing with some big sports venues. And then some opportunities came along from maybe University College London, maybe the V&A might be interested in locating there. And I think it's important that when you see something like that or the whole Olympic bit itself, you say, well, actually, this is something that can help further what we want to do. Let's grab onto it. Let's try to mould it to our aims. Um, so being opportunistic, understanding what you can and can't do, understanding how you can use you know, power and influence alongside each other, which is down to politics, actually, and yeah, you know, yeah. where the political leadership is. Um, I think there's something that always... Uh, We've talked about this before. Um, something that always stuck with me from um, the biography of uh, Ronald Moses, um, who was a deeply flawed man in many ways, uh, the big New York uh, infrastructure builder. Yeah. Um, 
But one of the things he did early on were was to when he was building his um, parkways out on Long Island, upsetting all of the uh, the Vanderbilts, all of the big robber barons who had their properties because he wanted to build publicly accessible um, parkways and beaches across their land, was he'd put stakes in the ground. He'd go and get some money from the city government and he'd put stakes in the ground and start laying out sites. And then he'd go back to the next year and say, well, I've started the work now, so we need to carry on. And so getting in there early, getting the stakes in the ground so that you know politicians who will always be tempted to back out of things can't do that. We had that in the um, from the Olympic experience as well. But soon after we won, someone from the government body, I forget which one, said to me, you know you've got the Treasury very upset. There's three things they like to do, the Treasury being the big finance ministry in the UK, is to de-scope projects, delay them or say no to them. And you just ruled out those three options by winning this bid. So, sorry, that's slightly rambling, but I think getting in there early, getting early commitment to projects so that they start moving forward and so they start showing benefits. I think understanding power and, you know, being having a strategic vision, knowing what you want the city, what good looks like, but actually being flexible enough to grab things that can take you there even by a more circuitous route. See, I, I like all that. I think that's going to be a major contribution to our joint book together now about the how you really? get it done in government, right? But I, I think also the only thing I would add, although you implied it, I think, is the is the early the early wins side of this to show yeah. that you're a credible force to work yeah. with. And, and here's ministers, my rather more ambitious scheme that I'd now like you to have a look at. I think is quite useful. I think the I, I call it double book accounting, you know, which is the essentially that you you give the political process, you know, the the, the goods that they normally require from you. But then you say, I've got something else I want you to, to have a look at. But I do think uh, this discussion has been fantastic. I think uh, for a grey blur, you aren't, uh, you ain't half interesting and uh, you've done some fantastic work behind the scenes and your monument, for your monument, we just look around you. You know, the, <laughs> you've done a lot of good stuff in London and this has been a really, really insightful and entertaining conversation. Thank you very much, Richard Brown. You have been listening to the third series of the Grimshaw podcast, Building the City, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in the series or listen to the previous series at your favourite podcast provider.